Good morning. We'll be reading the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, 19 through 27. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And at the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Will. <laughs> uh, my name is Jonathan Perez. I am the director of Justice and Mercy here at Life Church. Uh, that was my mom, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, mom. Um, essentially, what that means is that we as a church, we want to exist. Uh, to be a bridge between heaven and earth when it comes to doing justice and mercy in the city of Charlotte. And so we're going to take care of people that have been left out. We're going to take care of the poor. We're going to take care of the immigrants. We're going to take care of the refugee, the widows, and the oppressed. That is the job of the church, and that is what we do uh, with justice and mercy. So awesome to be a church. Yeah. Yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can clap for that. Other churches aren't doing this, by the way, too. Just my, my job title doesn't exist in a lot of other churches, so I'm so pumped to be here. Um, I'm going to pray over this, and, uh, and then we can start, okay? So will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to preach your word. And thank you for the saints that are gathered here. Thank you, Lord, for the people that you've drawn into this room. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you be with me in this moment, that you would honor my work and my diligence. And Spirit, I pray that you would work in this room, that the word would not fall on deaf ears or deaf hearts, Lord. God, but that people would be receptive to the truth. Most importantly, that you would be honored, Lord. God, we love you, and thank you for sending your son. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> in 1933, the threat of the Nazi power uh, was growing in Germany, and, and many were concerned about the compromise of the church within the Nazi movement and the state of Germany. The church was not resistant to the movement, and it began cooperating with the Reich handing over their loyalty that belonged to Christ 
to Hitler. Hitler did not merely want to rule Germany politically. Rather, he wanted to control the hearts and the souls of its citizens. This was not a political battle, but in reality, it was a battle for the soul of a nation. As many sat by, Hitler's takeover of the church accelerated, and when a Nazi group uh, gained control of the German evangelical church, they wanted to exclude all non-Aryan clergy, revise the liturgy to make it more German, and even remove the Old Testament from the Bible. As a result, a council of pastors who stood in complete opposition to the Nazi regime met and started what was called the Confessing Church Movement. I actually have a picture of it, the first meeting. Uh, There's a bunch of guys right there, unnamed. No one knows who they are. The only person that we know is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's on the right. He's got these weird glasses. There at the meeting, uh, also, if you have those glasses, I'm so sorry. (laughs) They look good on you. (laughs) There at this meeting, Dietrich Bonhoeffer signed a declaration stating that the church would be faithful to Christ and not to the Reich. It declared that the church would be loyal to Christ, faithful to his mission, and serve as a beautiful resistance to the Nazi regime. The problem was that a lot of pastors, though they proclaimed to be bold, were scared and afraid. And so seeking the weak, and so seeing that a lot of these pastors, uh, they were weak and they were lacking preparation of obedience to Christ and wanting to prepare them to resist the, re- the regime, the confessing church sensed the need for stronger training for their pastors. In 1935, Dietrich Bonhoeffer accepted the invitation to create an underground seminary that would, sh- that would train and strengthen pastors, matching what they believed with what they practiced. His vision was an intentional Christian community committed to living the ethics, the life, the love, and practicing the way of Jesus. The problem was that they couldn't really find anywhere to host this underground community, and so they kept looking, and they were trying to find it. And in the providence of God, they were able to buy a large, empty house available in the rural town called Finkenwald. I'm not German. I think that's how you pronounce it. I looked it up on YouTube. Hopefully it's right. In this underground community, a schedule, there was a schedule of study, of prayer, of confession, and life together began. And for the students, in the middle of this onslaught of what seemed like hell, this little underground community in Finkenwald was a portal to heaven. Life together and the vision of a beautiful resistance was going well. Pastors were being strengthened. Friendships were being formed. And it felt... Like there was hope for the gospel to stand up against the Nazi regime. Sadly, all that hope died when the Gestapo would soon come to arrest more than two dozen Finkenwald students. Questions began to arise, and so when uh, Bonhoeffer's friends uh, met with him, they started to ask him a lot of hard questions. They started to say, you know, was this, was this necessary? Was this even worth it? How would an underground community 
a band of misfits stand against the Nazi regime. One friend in particular who had heard about the underground community decided to go pay Bonhoeffer a visit to try and convince him that it wasn't worth it and that he should shut the seminary down. What a horrible friend. <laughs> when Bonhoeffer's friend arrived, Bonhoeffer took his friend on a rowing trip. And when they reached the shore, Bonhoeffer led his friend up a small hill where they could see in this distance this giant field that contained a runway for Nazi planes and Nazi squadrons. With their eyes on this hill, they saw fighter planes taking off and landing, soldiers moving with purpose and patterns, and a regime growing stronger and stronger every day. Bonhoeffer, a pastor with unflinching loyalty to the cross, standing as a prophetic sign to the world, looked at his friend and said, this, this is why we have to be stronger than them. This is why we have to continue to meet when it doesn't make sense. What he was doing in Finkenwald in the underground community it had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. And the times called for a beautiful resistance, an opposition to the regime and a loyalty to Jesus Christ. In 1937, the Gestapo would close the seminary. And eight years later, months before the end of the war, the war Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually would be killed. And what seemed like defeat actually planted a small seed of a faithful church over time growing and bearing fruit. Today, the Reich is a shameful memory, Hitler is in the grave, and the German church is in repentance. But most importantly, the fruit of Finkenwald, the community, the vision, and the work of these faithful few has gone on to shape a vision of Christian community that has inspired millions. Guys, it does not make sense that a small bandit of pastors could have had the resources, the talent, and the time to stand against one of the greatest forces that we've ever seen in this world. Christianity should have died in Germany when Finkenwald died as well. The reason that I believe that the gospel has survived and thrived in the narrative of history under moments of peace and moments of intense persecution is because there's always been a group of believers who have been disinterested in themselves and totally enamored with Christ. Whether it was the Reich in the 1900s or the dispersion in Acts 11 that we just read, whether it was Nazi Germany or the church in Antioch, God has always preserved his people. And he's always given them a better alternative than the one offered by the world. Today, I want to share with you, I want to share with you the mission that sparked this movement, the beautiful resistance, and an alternative to how life was meant to be lived. You guys ready? I have really good news for you. 
I have one point today. Amen. So we should be done by 1.30. Uh, point one, if you're taking notes. The early church was successful because they were in, disinterested in themselves and totally enamored with Christ. Says point two, I apologize. Whenever Ben makes mistakes, like have grace for him because this is hard. <laughs> point one, <laughs> the early church was successful because they believed that God would not only preserve, uh, I'm sorry, because they were disinterested in themselves and totally enamored with Christ. Look back at the text with me. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Up to this point in the story, the disciples, they've been persecuted, they've been dispersed, and after the conversion of Cornelius, we are beginning to see that the Lord's hand is guiding and directing the disciples to places that the gospel has never been to. And one of those places that the Lord takes this dispersed people is a place called Antioch. Guys, to us, people living in 2023, Antioch is just another city in the Bible, but to the disciples 2,000 years ago, Antioch was an embodiment of hell on earth. Antioch was called the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. It was estimated that about 500,000 people lived in this city. The city was a melting pot for at least five cultures, and these cultures didn't really get along with one another. In order to protect the, the city against outside foes, the city built walls around the city. But there were so many people from so many different ethnic groups that they actually had to build walls within the city, high walls between every ethnic group to protect the different racial groups from each other. I actually have a picture of it. So if you, if you look in the city, this is the city of Antioch, there's walls within the city. It's so weird. The reason why they had these walls is because if there was an incident in the marketplace, somebody insulted somebody else, somebody stepped on somebody's robe or something like that, the walls would prevent a huge uprise of ethnic group versus ethnic group. The city was so divided that they needed fortresses inside to protect themselves against themselves. Antioch, although it had a population of 500,000 people, the city wasn't that big. I'll give you an example. Manhattan is 100 people per acre. And 98% of their buildings are high-rise buildings. So you can hypothetically put more people on these buildings. The density of Antioch was something like 200 people per acre. There were no high-rises, so there was nowhere else to put extra people and they also didn't have running toilets. Church history is fun. The city was mired with filth, 
Guys, there would be feces everywhere. Rodents would be everywhere. Trash would be everywhere. Kind of like New York, but a lot worse. (laughs) Sorry if you're from New York. (laughs) So as a result, there was a, a tremendous amount of sickness. And so when someone got sick, there wasn't any room to, to put them anywhere, and so they would just throw them out of the city. This was Antioch. Antioch didn't care for its people. What Antioch was most famous for, though, was its worship of Daphne, a Roman deity. Apparently, the, the story goes that Apollos, another Roman deity, was sexually chasing Daphne and in this sexual pursuit of her. And, and I want to say this carefully, but he was chasing her without her consent. And so day and night, the temple priest and the men of the city would reenact this scene with temple prostitutes. Antioch, as a city, was totally depraved, radically resistant to any change, self-segregating, sexually promiscuous. Guys, if, if there was a city where the gospel movement should have failed and should have died, it should have been stopped and it should have been paused, where it should have not prevailed, it should have been Antioch. Yet, in spite of all the social pressures, the lack of resources, the unsurmountable odds, like Finkenwald in Germany, the message of Jesus Christ prevailed. People are getting saved. The culture is being changed. A remnant was preserved, and they were adding to their numbers. As beautiful as that is, the thing that I want you to see today is that the city of Antioch was saved by the Lord using a remnant of people who had no name. Nowhere in the book of Acts are we told who this remnant were. They weren't given a name. They weren't given an identity. They weren't even given a special title. Instead, all that we're given about them in verse 19 is that they were those who were scattered. These Christians, they didn't have names. They didn't have any official direction, no human instruction, no precedence to follow. Simply, all they had was a burning love and a burning desire for Christ. And as a result, they took the message to Antioch without realizing that they were in the midst of a beautiful resistance themselves. They were in this beautiful resistance against the powers and the principalities that, and the rulers that, that controlled the city. Guys, there was no magic formula. There was nothing special about them. All they were doing was being obedient to the call of Jesus. Jesus, the king, is sending him out. And all throughout his ministry, Jesus had a priority for the lost. In Luke 19, verse 10, we're told that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In Matthew 18, we're told that the good shepherd leaves the 99 for the one, and that there's so much more rejoicing over that one sheep that is found than the 99 who's already been found. And the verse that finishes off that section of Scripture, it says, it's not the will of the Father that one of these little ones should perish. 
all throughout his ministry, the lost were and are the priority of Jesus. Jesus' pursuit for the lost is never in question. Instead, do you know what he does? Do you know what he invites us to? He asks us to join him in the harvest. And here's the beautiful thing about the harvest. He's already planted it. Often we pray, or how many times have you heard churches pray or people pray, Lord, send us a harvest. And God's response is always, open your eyes. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest, it's ripe. The harvest is ready for the taking. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus is asking us to partake in what he's already planted. He's inviting us into obedience. He's inviting us into delight. He's inviting us to uproot what he's already planted. Jesus asked the unnamed disciples to partake in what he had already planted. And the text tells us, because the Lord's hand was with them, a great number of people believed and turn to the Lord. I want you to picture this with me. The city of Antioch had its walls, had its barriers, ethnic group against ethnic group, those walls of hostility and division that Antioch had built were being torn down. Jews and Gentiles were once enemies, now they're being called brothers and sisters. The powers and the principalities at play, they were being cast out. All the social unrest was finally getting rest. The sick were being taken care of. The migrants were not being overlooked. Jesus had invaded Antioch. The people who were seeking satisfaction and purpose and idols and deities doing this pagan worship were given complete fulfillment and joy in Christ. Oh, man, it reminds me of the story in John 4. The, the woman at the well, Jesus sees her, calls her out for her sin. And, and, and the lady's reaction is beautiful. She goes and says, come and see. Come and join in. It's amazing that this happened in Antioch. It shouldn't have happened in Antioch. They were overpowered. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the talent. They didn't even have names. Now, here's why this matters to you in 2023 in the city of Charlotte. What Antioch was for the unnamed disciples is Charlotte for you. What Antioch was for the unnamed disciples is the workplace for you. What Antioch was for the unnamed disciples is the neighborhood for you. Listen, the harvest is meant for you. And the Lord has promised that wherever his word would go, it would not return void, meaning that it would bring something or someone back. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God has never stopped pursuing the lost. Do you believe that? Part of us 
want to believe that, but if we're being honest, <laughs> there are barriers and walls that have been placed that make the mission almost impossible. For some of you, the place that God has purposefully and intentionally placed you in is your workplace. And the harvest is right there. But it seems daunting. Compliance form after compliance form, company protocol after company protocol, company trainings that have made the gospel almost impossible to share. Amen? You share the gospel, you, you break the forms you signed, and then you get fired. Some of you have clients that you meet with or patients that you take care of that are physically or emotionally broken. And if you share the gospel with them, you could lose your license or your practice. For some of you, it's less severe. You work in a place that's pretty loose. No one really cares if you share your faith, but you're afraid. You're afraid because you don't want to be the social pariah, the weird outcast that nobody wants to hang out with. Guys, I'm not condemning you. I'm right there with you. I, I do photography on the side. If you're ever looking for great photography, <laughs> ask Ashley Brockett or Ashley Chester <laughs> or anyone named Ashley. <laughs> Guys, when I was an intern at the church and I would meet people at different places or events or random places, one of the first questions that people genuinely ask are, what do you do for a living? And I would always say, oh, I do photography. <laughs> I, I don't work at a church, I do photography. I was afraid, I didn't want to be the weird church guy. I wanted them to at least not have any barriers before I could form a relationship with them. Guys, do you know the beautiful thing about work? Relationships can start there, but they definitely flourish outside of it. The reality of it is that some of your lost friends will probably never come to this church. But do you know what you can do? You can do what the ancients called having church around a table. Opening up your home, sharing a meal with them, and actually doing life together. Do you know that the Lord has placed people in your life that other men and women in this church will never interact with. And what's crazy is that no one in the world might be praying for this person except you. Do you know the most selfless and loving act that we can, we can do is pray? We get rid of our needs and our wants and our asks and, and instead, we pray for them. Whenever we think about the harvest, we think about those who sow and, and who reap, right? Those who, who sow seed and those who reap it. What if you were just meant to be a rock picker? <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Uh, what, if, what if you were just meant to be a rock picker? Someone who removes rocks so that seeds can be planted in the future. Let me ask you something. What other accountant, what other therapist, what other nurse do you know that is praying for their clients? 
I will. (laughs) What other banker, what other lawyer is constantly petitioning on their knees before the Lord for their clients? Parents, who, who else is going to intercede for your kids that they would grow up to know the Lord? And I have no idea who needs to hear this right now. I have no idea who this is for. And the Lord woke me up and he made me write this and I didn't want to. <laughs> the work that the Lord has placed on your life is not insignificant. Some of your jobs may look a little different. Some of you may just be stay-at-home parents. And sometimes you may feel like the work you're doing is insignificant. And I want to tell you, that is a lie from the, our enemy. Guys, we, we often hear about testimonies of, of people being saved from sex, drugs, jail, and addiction. And those are amazing and beautiful stories. But let me tell you something, no parent in the history of the world has ever prayed, God, let that be my children. You, parents, have the best 15 to 20 year plan to reach the city of Charlotte. Amen? It's not insignificant. The minute and the moment you are praying for your children, history is slowly being changed. For some of you, the battle has gone on so much longer. There are people in your life who you've been praying for for what seems like an eternity. (laughs) You've lost sleep, you've lost time, you've lost energy, you've been faithful and persistent, yet it seems like the Lord is quiet. I'm right there with you. There are family members that I have who I love more than anything. Family members who I've labored tirelessly, lost sleep. Family members who I would trade anything in the world to try to see them in the kingdom of heaven. And all you can say is, what are you doing, Lord? Don't you care? Seems like when you pray, there's nothing. One of the best ways I've ever heard prayer described is, imagine that you're throwing rocks into a body of water. And depending on the size of your body of water, every time you throw a rock, it sinks to the bottom of the ground. And it seems so pointless. Throwing rocks seems pointless, and it's long, and it's boring. But eventually, if you keep going long enough, Guys, there's going to be a day when that body of water will be filled with nothing but rocks and the surface will finally show. Guys, I don't know how big your body of water is. Sometimes you throw a rock and it lands in a puddle and, and your prayer gets answered immediately. And sometimes you're going to be throwing rocks for what seems like days and years until you see solid ground. The best example that I've ever heard of this is the story of Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody is one of the most famous preachers of our time, great evangelist. And someone came up to him and they asked him, hey, D.L., why is your ministry such a success? And he's thinking and he's pondering and he basically says one word, prayer. 
Moody cared so much for the unbelievers in his life that, get this, he carried a list in his pocket of 100 non-Christians for whom he prayed daily. Moody would go into his closet, into the stillness of the night, in secret, and on their behalf, he would plead for them name by name that the Lord would reveal himself. Over the years, whenever someone would give their life to Christ, Moody would, would cross that name off the list. And by the time of his death, no fewer than 96 of those 100 people had become followers of Christ. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining names on that list were each in attendance. Those friends were so moved by the stories of Moody, by the life of Moody, that at the funeral service, they all came to faith one by one. All 100 were saved because Moody's refusal to give up and pray over the months and the years throw rocks until it finally hits land. As one author put it, history belongs to the intercessors, to the ones who pray. The course of history is forever changed when you pray. There are some of you in this room that are unbelievers, that are skeptics, that are here because of a result of someone's persistent prayer for you. There are some of you in this room that you don't know this, but you are loved very much by this person who has given up their time and their desire to pray for you. They've prayed for your well-being. They've prayed for your work. They've prayed that you would prosper. And they've selfishly given up a part of their life to intercede on your behalf. If someone has brought you today, it's most likely that they've spent time praying for you. And there's two reasons why. One, it's because they love you. And they actually love you. They're going to be your friends no matter what, and they're going to care for you. They're not going to give up on you. And second is because they want so much more for you, because they want you to experience the life, the way life is meant to be experienced. Because the reality is, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you are not the unnamed disciples in this story. You are the people living in Antioch. The beautiful thing about all of us in this room is that at one time or another, we all set up camp in Antioch. All of us, all of us have seeked pleasure in things that would give us ultimate joy and satisfaction, and we've been let down. All of us have lived in Antioch concerned about our, our advancement, concerned about our careers, our money, our, our rise to fame instead of anybody else's, so we just throw them to the side. All of us have given our time, our money, and our talent into things we thought would give us purpose, but it left us disappointed. That's a beautiful word, and I just want to harp in on that word for a second. Life's trouble can be summed up in one word, disappointment. All of us in this room have been disappointed at one time or another in our lives. Disappointment thinking that the things of this world would satisfy you. More money, 
has left you unsatisfied. Bigger promotions has left you unsatisfied. All the pleasures in the world have left you unsatisfied and disappointed. Guys, it might be because you don't belong to this world and you were created for something greater. Maybe because you're lost and being lost, all that is is the feeling, this gut feeling that when you realize you're going the wrong way, that the way you thought was going to lead to your prosper, that the way you thought was going to lead to success, it's got you all spin around and now you're lost and you're seeking. Some of you are here and you're disappointed in yourself. Maybe you've done things that you're ashamed of. Maybe you've bought the lie that you can out God's love and God's grace. Maybe you're the one exception to God's grace. There are some of you who have been running for so long, and it's finally time to come home. There are some of you who have gone off. You've come and visited church, it wasn't your thing, you left, and then you're back here, and there's a reason why. If you think I'm talking to you, I am. Some of us have been disappointed from someone in power in our life. Maybe someone has hurt you. This person who was in power is supposed to protect you, and instead they use their power to hurt you. And you've lived with that. And now you're a disappointed adult. Listen, God has promised that he would reconcile all things to himself, including your disappointment. But I need you to hear this. The biggest disappointment is that you would live this life without true purpose, joy, and satisfaction, and that one day you would stand before a holy God with all of your life's work, and he would literally say, you have missed the mark. God promised that he would reconcile all things to himself, and that includes you. And he did that only one way. He did that through the cross of Jesus Christ. Every day we have lived in Antioch is a day that we have lived in rebellion against our creator. Every day that we've lived in rebellion, you know what we deserve? We deserve death. But God in his mercy and God in his grace has forgiven you and gotten rid of your disappointments. But it only happens one way. And that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of good. There's no amount of time you can pour to something. There is nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ that can forgive you of your sins. The cross is a reminder that you would repent of your rebellion, that you would repent of your sins, and that you would stop following your way and follow a better way. That you would no longer live in Antioch, but that you would live in Jesus. That you would live as life was intended to live. For the unbeliever in the room, I'm so glad you're here. And obviously someone is so glad you're here because they have prayed relentlessly for you that you would repent of your sins. Jesus died 
so that we could live. Jesus sacrificed so that we would be clean. He blotted away our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Jesus is inviting you to his life. And the question is, will you accept it? Life can be found in Christ. Stop living in Antioch and come home. And for the believer in this room, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ready. But the workers are few. Are you ready to be workers? Are you ready to take over Charlotte? Thank you, Mom. For the unbeliever, the invitation is out there. Will you accept it or will you reject it? Let's pray.